0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions and following on our two-part series on the nature of health, we thought we'd try out what we learned in addressing F. Scott Fitzgerald's essay, The Crack-Up, which came up in the series that we did in a kind of um, sideways manner in that part of his essay was quoted in, I guess it would have been the first and also in the second treatment of health. You were trying to
1: discuss uh, negative capability.
0: Yeah, I misquoted it and then happily, you know, circled back and, you know, I kind of knew at the time that I messed it up, you know, one of my many factual crack-ups. And <laughs> so, but at any rate, it, you know, and then looked at this essay and said, oh yeah, this would be perfect to follow on. So that's what we're going to do. And my name is Sam Truitt. Yeah, I'm
2: Sparrow.
0: And I'm Andrew McCarran. And so in terms of the introduction to this essay, it was written in 1936, and it came out in a three-part series through Esquire magazine, and it was written in a period of time in which Fitzgerald needed to make some coin. They'd sort of gone through a bunch of money, he and his wife Zelda. His wife, Zelda, at this time, was living at Highland Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina. I think she had come there in 1935 or thereabouts, and Fitzgerald himself was living in the Grove Park Inn Mm. uh, in Asheville, which was this sort of large hotel, you know, kind of a summer hotel, you know, one of these big hotels like the Catamont or, you know, in the Borscht Belt, you know, here in the Catskills, you know, these big summer hotels Mm -hmm. and resorts. Resorts. Yeah. Thank you. And he was up on the fourth floor. He had two rooms. One of the rooms was dedicated to his writing or his office. And the other room was sort of his living quarters and it was situated, the two rooms were situated so that he could look out the window and see who was coming and going. Mm. Like, that was important for Fitzgerald. He wanted to observe, as I understand, attractive women in Uh part, He was a bit of a voyeur in that sense. And also to see if any, you know like rich people or people whom he knew or, you know, he wanted to keep tabs on the comings and goings there. In part, obviously, his move to Asheville had been to be near his wife Zelda over there in Highland Hospital, um, which was a sort of progressive sanatorium. She suffered probably from manic depression, although I believe she was diagnosed as a schizophrenic. Um, I think the assignment of different diagnoses were somewhat fluid back in the day. Yes, I'd
3: like like to add that this was before the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental
0: Disorders. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have helped. At any rate, she was living there and and in fact died there in 19, I think it was 48. And I think she was 48. So Fitzgerald is there. It's 1936. He needed to make coin. He proposed, I guess, to Esquire this three-part essay called The Crack-Up, and I think he was partially in Asheville to kind of um, dry out. Uh, In my sort of light research around this, I heard that, you know, part of this drying out had to do with staying off hard liquor, but that it was like copacetic to drink beer, and that Fitzgerald, yeah, Fitzgerald would drink, I heard, something like 50 beer ponies, something called a pony, which I think is like a smaller beer, it's not like a 12-ounce, maybe it's an 8-ounce beer. 15? No, 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 Sparrow, 50. Well, it's smaller, you have
3: to drink more. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good (laughs) one. Yeah, although I noticed in the essay, he talks about how he hadn't had a drink for six months. I think it comes up in the essay. So Right, at
1: one point in the essay,
0: yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of all the, the exterior sort of setup on this um, that we particularly need. And then I'm hoping we can sort of plunge into this work and see what there is to see about the nature of the crack-up. And, and I, I guess, guess yeah.
1: the general history of Fitzgerald is that he was a big star in the twenties, and uh, the twenties ended, and his major celebrity ended. I think I'm not positive about that, and th- and then he ended up, uh, you know, kind of embarrassingly or pathetically writing for Hollywood as a as a Hollywood sort of hack screenwriter. That's my sense.
3: Yeah, unsuccessfully. Um...
1: Right, like all of those, I think all of those great writers that were in Hollywood, none of them produced anything that was worth any, you know, that was any good by Hollywood standards because they weren't the right kind of, you know, in a way you have to be a hack to write well in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, and I guess from the also Southern, uh, well, from, you know, as uh, Faulkner famously went out to Hollywood and had a miserable time and left. Yeah, and of course, Fitzgerald was the major voice of the jazz age, and I think that he applied to Zelda the tag that she was the first flapper, and that that stuck. You know, the flapper hmm. characterized women wearing uh, hair and bangs, and wearing skirts that were like shorter, and that had a lot of... Bangles or something, and then they flapped yeah. around a lot. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure which dress <laughs> a flapper, but and dance. Was, I yeah. think there was a lot
1: of dancing.
0: And I know that Fitzgerald, as he says in the essay, had a real chip on his shoulder, in that he wasn't, you know, didn't fight or, you know, serve on the ambulance. Oh right, he wasn't in
1: World War One. Right. Yeah, he talks about these two crises in his life that were kind of presaged the uh, the the big crack up. He says here, my two juvenile regrets at not being big enough or good enough to play football in college, and at not getting overseas during the war. So uh, that those were his two first crises that he uh, discussed. Was which, which you know it's hard not to notice. Are crises of masculinity, football right. and war being almost identical, really. <laughs> and you look at the photograph of Fitzgerald, um, in this essay that, that we downloaded from Esquire magazine, still has it online. And the, the photo of Fitzgerald, he really looks like a dandy, a little, what's the word, ambivalent sexual, sexually. You know, you could see a little, Lack of conventional masculinity in his features. Anyway, I think I can. And uh, and then I was thinking about Nick Carraway, the the uh, uh, narrator of The Great Gatsby, who seems to have some kind of ambivalent sexuality. He ends up in this bizarre and failed um, um, romance with uh, uh, this uh, lesbian tennis star.
2: What's her Jordan name? Jordan Baker.
1: Jordan Baker. Yes. What a great name. And and if Caraway is uh, also Fitzgerald, th- that suggests that this kind of uncertainty about his masculinity might be kind of at the key. I mean, just to rush in with a kind of Freudian uh, interpretation of his crack up
3: and Sparrow uh, in The Great Gatsby as, as well. Nick Caraway has that ambiguous homosexual encounter with a photographer who lives in the same building as as Tom Buchanan's lover. That's right. He yeah, it, after yes. that
1: tragic party. that yeah. The party where Tom Buchanan breaks his girlfriend's nose. Yeah, he
3: breaks Myrtle's nose. Uh, Nick gets fabulously drunk and then ends up in the apartment of Mr. McKee downstairs. <laughs> um, and Mr. McKee is wearing nothing but his underwear, showing Nick his portfolio of photographs, and it's all right. ambiguous. And and the whole thing is, that
1: whole episode, that little sub-episode is very obliquely described. I mean, there's not very, it's very vague what goes on. And certainly, I've never noticed it was a homosexual encounter, probably due to my own repression. But it's very unclear why it's in the book, you know. It, it doesn't even seem relevant somehow to anything,
0: So unless it scary? is some sort
1: of, you know secret statement about this uh, gay element of Nick Carraway.
0: Yeah, so how does this gender um, gender or sexual preference profile that you're applying to Fitzgerald, how does it relate to the crack-up? Is that something that you can follow through on, or I'm not... I'm yeah, I don't, is... I don't have
1: a
2: a, a theory,
1: okay. you know? I'm, I'm not sure... I mean, I guess I feel that feeling is, because I realized when I was reading this, I had a crack-up, or or maybe two crack-ups, right around the same age that uh, Fitzgerald is describing his. Like, mine was, the first one was at 40, and the second one was maybe at 45.
0: Importantly, just to jump in, he was 39 years old, and then mm. he died four years later. Um, you know, after right. moving to Hollywood, He was dating a gossip columnist and... Oh, right, Sheila Graham, right? Yeah, and writing for the films and then also writing The Last Tycoon, which he never finished. Right, right. The Love of the Last Tycoon.
1: And then he died of a massive stroke, right? Like, Dad died in a moment, I think.
0: Now, in terms of your crack-up, Sparrow, I mean, uh, he Hmm. talks about two different kinds of blows, the sudden big blow that come or seem to come from outside, the ones you remember Mm. and blame things on. And in moments of weakness, tell your friends and podcast listeners about, (laughs) um, don't show their effect all at once. And then, I guess, and then really we're focusing on This other sort of blow that comes from within, Mm. that you don't feel until it's too late to do anything about it, until you realize with finality that in some regard, you will never be as good a man again. Yeah, right.
2: Interesting
1: phrase, right? As good a man. I mean, of course, people talk like that in 1936, but it does... Vaguely suggest some kind of masculine, uh, you'll never be a real man again.
0: And so, would You're that characterize people. the crack up that you experienced around 40?
1: Well, I mean, the one I was going to talk about was, um, you know, I think it was it was interior, there was nothing exterior that caused it, if that's what he means by an outer blow. Um, and the one, what's the word, manifestation that I remember, I have a bad, bad memory for anything, as maybe you've noticed if you listen to these podcasts. But there was one day I was walking home from I work I was there. R- oh thank you. Well I was roughly 40 and I lived in the East Village of Manhattan and I was walking between 12th Street and 11th Street. I was almost home. And across from the movie theater there on 2nd Avenue and uh, as I was walking it that one block took an infinite length of time to 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 walk down like Time slowed, and I was caught in this kind of viscous imaginary fluid. And I, I like, I was suddenly stuck in time. I couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't move. And, you know, that's, and then I started going to a therapist, and, you know, like, I was, I was worried I was going insane. But I think in retrospect, I was just having some kind of crack up. And I think the way I eventually articulated it to myself, and that's why I bring this up with Fitzgerald, is that, um, I think that my interior script for my life was something like, I'm going to be a bohemian until I'm 40. Then I'm going to, you know, go straight. You know, if I don't succeed as a poet or something, and you know, if I don't succeed in my life of art, I'm going to, you know, grow up, get a job, a real job, not a part-time job, and, you know, become a normal American. And um, I was suddenly 40, I was a failure, and I and I still didn't want to grow up. I didn't want to follow the script, and I couldn't handle life deviating from the script. And, um, you know, I, I think that was the source of my crisis. And, you know, I went to this very kind-hearted Upper West Side therapist, and uh, my previous therapist would always accusingly say to me, uh, she was an Israeli she would say uh, do you realize that you dress like a homeless person and it you know made me i don't know uncomfortable a little you know to have your own therapist tell you that and i brought it up with my new therapist one time and i said you know my old therapist used to always tell me i dress like a homeless person she said my new therapist rita said to me that's your style and it was she, she was just like infinitely accepting yeah And I started to be infinitely accepting of myself, or at least slightly accepting of myself, and I think that's how I overcame the crack-up. Whether I was ever as good a man again, I think I was as good a man again. But I think maybe there was something in, in Fitzgerald that his life script did not play out the way he wanted it to, including perhaps his manliness, his masculinity, or some kind of role he was trying to play that he couldn't play. And he just couldn't go on. It just he didn't find a way to to leap over that the crack. Of. Well, leap over the crack and into a new identity.
3: Yeah, he he doesn't make that that shift. That alchemy of transformation doesn't occur early on. Doesn't he mention forty nine? That he he. Yeah, I love that quote. Yeah, I have it right here. He said. Yeah, that's I weird. was living hard, too, but, quotes,
1: up to 49, it'll be all right, I said. I can count on that. For a man who's lived as I have, that's all you could ask. And then, ten years this side of 49, I suddenly realized that I had prematurely cracked.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I like um, that quote, which he, he um, puts quotes around it you know, and and inserts that I said. Um, And it seems part and parcel, if I may, with kind of something I observed in the tone of this essay, which seems very characteristic of the 1930s. And this kind Mm. of depressed masculinity, uh, a little bit of like the Dos Passos, the O'Hara, a lot of those sort of heavy depression era novels and and ideas of masculinity mm. ideas of psychology they just seem inherently depressing frankly mm. you know i can make it to 49 i can count on that you know and he understands that he's <laughs> lived hard ostensibly because he drank a lot because fitzgerald mm. was an alcoholic which curiously doesn't come up in this essay you know yeah. The fact that, I believe, underlying his crack-up is alcoholism. I mean, isn't that obvious? I don't know.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure if that that's the cause or the... You know, that's part of how he adapts to the world, but I imagine there are alcoholics that don't crack up. I don't think that's the only cause. I mean, What do I know? I mean, I'm... Like a Mormon, when it comes to drinking, I to me everyone but me is an alcoholic, so it's very hard for me to judge. My daughter is always, uh, you know, attacking me for being a puritan about drinking. But still, I it seems to me lots of people drink, and and not all of them crack up. The other part that's very thirties is his uh, kind of crypto communism. You know, here he is, this kind of jazz era, happy go lucky. Novelist and short story writer, and now by the '30s, he's constantly mentioning Lenin. You know, uh, Lenin, the creator of the uh, Russian Revolution. You know, and the Russian Revolution is still fairly young, and uh, you know, still seems to be a success. And Fitzgerald had some kind of weird, you know, uh, close connection with with Marxism, and he says. Uh, Let's see. uh, He's listing great men. He said, Lenin did not willingly endure the sufferings of his proletariat, nor Washington of his troops, nor Dickens of his London poor. And when Tolstoy tried some such merging of himself with the objects of his attention, it was a fake and a failure. I mention these because they are the men best known to us all. So uh, he's talking about something like he had, he has this line that he puts in italics. I had become identified with the objects of my horror or compassion. Something about how he had become kind of one with the proletariat or something. But I mean, it Mm -hmm. looks weird in a, in a, in an essay. You don't expect people in essays. Nowadays, no whatever American in an essay would include Lennon, along with Washington, Dickens,
3: and Tolstoy as great men. You know, I think one of the great tragedies of Fitzgerald's life, emblemized by this essay, is that it seems as if, um, well, at least to a degree, he believed it was possible for people to reinvent themselves or to become something else, to change. You know, that transformation, that second birth doesn't occur. But he tries at it, references his experiment with um, asceticism when he, he mm-hmm. goes off to the hotel room, right? He travels a thousand miles one mm-hmm. night to the hotel room and commits himself to this uh, ascesis that doesn't quite pan out. And then in that list, he also writes about the um, emergence of a political conscience, which um, your remarks, Sparrow, got me thinking of. It's number five, that my political conscience had scarcely existed for 10 years save an element of irony in my stuff. When I became again concerned with the system I should function under, it was a man much younger than myself who brought it to me with a mixture of passion and fresh air. But I get the sense haunting this language is that Fitzgerald couldn't rejuvenate himself through some kind of political awakening, whether it was through identification with the proletariat or some other political commitment. That no, no new start really worked. That's the, that's the um, great tragedy for me as well. In, in not not to uh, veer too far away from Fitzgerald, but in Jack Kerouac's novel *Big Sur*,
2: hmm. where he
3: goes to the Pacific Ocean. He's staying in Lawrence Ferlinghetti's cabin in *Big Sur*, and he's really trying to um, to change things, to transform, to find hmm. something that he lost along the way. And none of it, none of it, none of it helps him.
2: And he's another alcoholic. Come to he's, think yeah, of it. right. He
3: he he died several years later, um, similar to Fitzgerald of alcohol-related.
0: I think famously though, alcohol. didn't Fitzgerald say in America there are no second acts?
1: I know. I found myself constantly
0: thinking, he of did. That yes. phrase. "Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah." Those were prescient words for his own life trajectory.
0: Yeah, and the one thing where he does bring up alcoholism is. You know, following on what you quoted, Sparrow, uh, I suddenly realized I had prematurely cracked. And then the next paragraph Mm -hmm. starts, Now a man can crack in many ways, can crack in the head, in which case the power of decision is taken from you by others. And in the body, when you can but submit to the white hospital world, or in The Nerves, the third. William Seabrook, mm-hmm. in an unsympathetic book, tells with some pride and a movie ending of how he became a public charge. What led to his alcoholism, or was bound up with it, was a collapse of his nervous system. I, You know, that's a, that's a 30s thing. Like, oh yeah, you know, he lost his nerve. His nerves went. Though the present writer was not so entangled, having at the time not tasted as much as a glass of beer for six months, it was his nervous reflexes that were giving way. So this is Fitzgerald. His nervous reflexes yeah. are, are cut. Too much anger and too many tears. fast. Yeah, well,
1: it's almost like he said to himself, all right, all right I'll give myself six months I'll, I won't have a, even a glass of beer and I'll see if that helps. And then, I mean, this seems like an alcoholic's logic to me. Uh, and then he uh, tries it and it doesn't help. So I might as well go back to being a
3: drunk. Reminds me of my uh, my aunt, my aunt Mary Kay, who's still alive. She's in a nursing home in Croton, New York, in the mountain river. But she was a very heavy drinker. I mean, from morning till night. <laughs> uh, vodka, you know, hard alcohol all day. And everyone in the family, so many people in the family, tried to get her sober. It never quite worked. Then, when she finally did get sober, her life really fell apart. Yeah, yeah. I've never yeah. forgotten that. It's more yeah, complicated remember, than just alcohol. But there's. Yeah, I
0: remember there. a um, a woman in Dublin, Lula of O'Faolain. She became quite a prominent writer in Ireland. She was, came out of newspapers, and I was introduced to her by. Uh, Clem Greenberg said, oh, you should get in touch with Nula of Phelan. I think that was the, the famous
2: Clement Greenberg.
0: And so I did, mm-hmm. and had this great time. We went out drinking and um, <laughs> yeah, like six, seven hours and uh, finally she clambered into a cab and off she went. We had a great time. But one of the things that she said is that in some cases... Drinkers should drink. That that's yeah. part mm-hmm. of their negotiation, part of keeping their nerves strung. You know, mm-hmm. facilitating having a spine, and that when they stop drinking, they lose some vitality.
1: Yeah, my dad's best friend Jimmy McCluskey, he was doing some kind of pull-ups on like a uh, like a swing set on a swing in San Francisco, and he fell and injured, broke his shoulder, I think, and he realized, you know, that he, was, he would drink a, a fifth of whiskey every day. He was an alcoholic. Um, but, you know, he worked. He was a functional alcoholic. And, but suddenly he, he turned against himself and decided he should never drink again. You know, he blamed his broken shoulder on the alcohol, which probably was justified. And then he never drank again and he just settled deeper and deeper into, uh, depression, anger, despair. I mean, I saw it happen to him. And he never seemed drunk. You know, he would, he was always drinking and he never was drunk. Or so it seemed to me as a kid. And I, I felt that too. And and nowadays, all these heroin addicts that die, you know, now that rehab is a kind of national religion, uh, people, even these young kids go into rehab. They're going to quit drugs forever. Then they come back, they take uh, heroin again, and they die of an overdose. This rehab kills more people than the than anything, you know. So I think quitting, you know, is it's something to consider carefully, you know. If you if you really, it can be
3: a, a suicidal gesture <laughs> <From> the, <laughs> to quit alcohol or to quit drugs, cold turkey, especially. For my aunt, it was the loss of uh, social community, the, the bar yes. world. The Dutch Tavern, it was called, in Poughkeepsie. was her family. That was her community. She was known there. She was recognized.
1: That's part of the genius of AA, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous. That's basically like 90% of the idea of AA is we're going to have a bar. You can see all your friends. You can bond deeply. And And you go go there
3: regularly, right? I want to point to a moment in the crack up that I was thinking about as, um, as we've been talking. And mm. right at the end of part two, mm. part, but part two is what? That's um, yeah. oh, pasting it together. Fitzgerald, right? Yeah, so there was not an I anymore. He's referring to the time immediately after the, the crack-up, the most recent crack-up at the age of 39. So there was not an I anymore, not a basis on which I could organize my self-respect, save my limitless capacity for toil, that it seemed I possess no more. Mm. It was strange to have no self, to be like a little boy, left alone in a big house, who knew that now he could do anything he wanted to do, but found that there was nothing that he wanted to do. It's like whether it was his masculine self, for his social identity, his artistic success, when all of that cracked up, there was nothing... There was nothing beneath it, at least nothing recognizable to him. He experienced what's referred to as um, ego melt, right? The the breakdown of the self, it seems. Which, from um, a medieval Catholic perspective, and I'm referring to Catholic mysticism here, this is this is a very positive moment potentially. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a lot. What I thought about this really? essay.
2: I mean, it,
1: the the essay could be seen as a kind of a dodge by him that he's really discussing a kind of enlightenment that happened to him that he's. You know, couching in, in a negative term. But anyway, keep going with what you're just, thinking.
3: I, I just, it made me think of St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul, the descent into mm. the darkness of the valley, ego melts, the death of the self as um, a step toward unio mystico, divine enlightenment, divine illumination, that um, all of those structures inside of us that constitute who we are through the decades of our adolescence and early adulthood must necessarily break apart and crack up in order for there to be a rebirth so and i feel that the tragedy is in the absence of that it just is this nothingness this, this breakdown that has i don't know no, there's no gnosis with divine wisdom there's nothing that seems to emerge out of it right but you're, you're you're wondering whether um, that was in fact the case
1: well you know the thing is he he's a great writer i think a beautiful writer you know, and I use that word precisely. And he writes very elegantly and objectively about himself. And it's kind of a unique document in the history of uh, American literature that I can think of. Maybe of the literature in... in, in. He's writing about this, this terrible crisis he has. And uh, with absolute honesty, objectivity, precision, and it doesn't sound like someone who's despairing and who's lost everything. It sounds like someone who's studying himself quite curiously and, uh, you know, with a sort of objective interest. Like, you know, he's talking about, he said, "I had not a basis on which I could organize my self-respect, save my limitless capacity for toil that it seemed I possessed no more. And he's talking about a certain obsessiveness that made him write maybe dozens of short stories, which I think are quite great. But there's a point where you can no longer work on pure obsessive energy. Something else has to come out of it.
0: He's saying he's lost his energy. Yeah. Yeah,
1: you know, I'm saying what he's lost is a certain compulsiveness, the kind of compulsive toil that that, you know, when you just work and work and work out of pure, you know, obsessive compulsion that you just have to keep constantly writing in the case of a writer, or constantly doing things, he loses that, but he he gains something else that he's not talking about, which is like, now I want to write about something important, something essential. You know, it happens that me and Andrew both recently read The Last Tycoon, and it feels kind of like, to me, in The Last Tycoon, that he's trying to really get to the center of something. that. Maybe something that can't even quite be articulated. But even in this essay, it feels like, yeah, he doesn't want to just do, you know, he doesn't want to mindlessly write. He wants to write about something that's really important.
0: Yeah, the one thing I would mention is another significant, I guess, 20th century novelist, William Styron. He hmm. wrote a book called Darkness Visible, in which he oh, speaks yeah. with the same kind of frankness about depression which is really what I believe Fitzgerald is clearly, to my mind, clearly voicing, is, a, is the struggle of a de- depressed person. Hmm, yeah. I, I mean, I would defer to Andrew on this, but, um, and certainly, Sparrow, just to address the certain kind of craft or elan and capacity t- to write, and that you're feeling a kind of um, verve in that, which I don't entirely disagree with at all. I mean, I think it is mostly well-written, albeit with sort of like very. I think. I think one thing that Fitzgerald suffered from is not having a more evolved way of seeing the world. I think there's probably mm-hmm. a good German word for this, but it's kind of gestalt, um, not gestalt. His his kind of way of seeing the world, worldview, zeitgeist, was a 30s, you know, he didn't have, you know, the access to the wells of wisdom of the East, India, Mm -hmm. Japan, Tibet, you know, Buddhist practice, these things hadn't come ashore yet. And Mm -hmm. he was dealing with the kind of Freudian, you know, sort of white and black universe. The one thing, though, is that this third part in which he goes into his a deep cynicism, like that's where the no. essay ends, is in the portrait of a cynic. Am I wrong?
3: Mm. I think you're right. I think it's de- it ends on a deeply cynical note. I think he's, mm. he's embittered. I don't see the um, enlightenment in the craft as Sparrow does. I get a sense of Fitzgerald um, playing the role of Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. Like, in in the right Yeah, yeah. I think he's after something, but he's not not quite there. He even um, writes about the, or I think, if my memory serves correct, he alludes to the elusive quality of the thesis that he's after. Like, he knows there's something Mm -hmm. that he, someplace he needs to get to, or something he needs to articulate, but he doesn't have the language. To say it. I would like to point out that uh Zelda I think is alluded to in this essay. I mean, I'm assuming that's who he's referring to when it comes to this terrible diagnosis. That's in the first section. He alludes to hearing the dreadful news of a terrible diagnosis. And I just assume Zelda's um mental health and subsequent institutionalization that he's referring to.
0: That's Uh, so interesting. I think that you're probably correct. I put a question mark there because it seemed to be hanging, and that makes perfect sense that he would be alluding to her diagnosis and that within the world of Esquire and within the construction of the Jazz Age and Fitzgerald, you know, perhaps was one of the best known literary figures of the 20s and, you know, then coming into the 30s, um, everybody would know that. And it would seem kind of discreet and gentlemanly not to mention, right. you know, not to specify. That's fascinating. I mean,
1: just objectively, you know, it's got to be hard to move to a city where you don't know anybody. You're visiting your wife who's in a loony bin, you know. I mean, you know, there's a lot to be depressed about, about his situation. And, and there's no end in sight. She's not getting better, you know. You know, just it's, it's a hard thing for anybody to deal with, let alone, uh, you know, someone who's kind of having other simultaneous crises.
0: And it's in a, in a place called Asheville.
3: <laughs> the, Valley <of> Ashes, <laughs> the Valley of Ashes from the Great Gatsby, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I found the moment, and it's fairly oh. early on in part one. I would say, um, well, I don't know. I'll just read it aloud here. Moreover, to go back to my thesis that life has a varying offensive, the realization of having cracked was not simultaneous with the blow, but with the reprieve. Not, not long before, I had sat in the office of a great doctor and listened to a great <laughs> sentence. I just assumed this was a reference to Zelda's diagnosis. Mm. With what, in retrospect, seems some equanimity I had gone on about my affairs in the city where I was then living, not caring much, not thinking how much had been left undone, or what would become of this and that responsibility like people do in books. I was well insured, and anyhow, I had been only a mediocre caretaker of most of the things left in my hands, even of my talent. But I had a strong, sudden instinct that I must be alone. I didn't want to see any people at all. I think that this is the seismic shift when he realizes that his life, his wife's life, the life of his small family, is going to be forever changed as a result of um, both his own shifting fortunes in the literary marketplace and his his alcoholism and his wife's psychological disintegration.
0: Right, and he's down there in Asheville, and he's holed up in the – heart grove in and that's his isolation I mean I think the
1: one like, my initial theory that, that his like life sorry that his life script was not um, working according to how he envisioned it you know comes back to me where, he, where he's saying up to 49 it'll be all right you know that was his his life plan he's going to be live a wild life drink a lot and die at 49 but instead when he's 39 his wife suddenly hospitalized uh, Everything falls apart too early, and he can't quite uh, handle
3: that. You know, according to his uh, his theory of how his life is going to be, and he he yeah. can no longer get it. He could no longer get it up artistically. Yeah, it's, it's, or didn't want to almost. Want in a way. No longer successful. You know, he entered into that real dry period. What's
1: great at writing about his his wild parties of the twenties, and suddenly there's a there's a giant depression. <laughs> And, you know, the world has completely reversed as a place. It's not the place he wrote about. It's not a place full of young guys from Yale dancing around and drinking champagne. And he's got a, you know, what people are writing about coal workers and like real people doing real things, which is not something he's good at writing about. And, and uh, he, he's, he's all out of uh, a job, you know? Nobody wants to re- de- read about the, the few remaining rich people and their uh, delightful uh, escapades, you know?
0: The, the other thing I would say, though, in terms of his relationship to that which he's been careless with, his talent, is that his wife, Zelda, is often, and I, and I you know, don't know, I'm not a Fitzgerald scholar, but she was kind of considered to be Fitzgerald's what we call muse, which is mm. kind of a hokey term, but a woman who inspires a man to do X, Y, or Z. And, um, you know, and to note, some of the short stories which were published by Fitzgerald may or were uh, written by Zelda. Really. Really? And she herself, yeah, and she herself was a painter and, you know, was engaged artistically, you know, and even to the mm. extent that you know, the way you live and the vitality with which you engage in different situations like parties and this and that is itself an art. Living well is the best Hmm. revenge. That was also a part of that scheme is this idea of living well. And so she was exemplary Hmm. in that. So when he lost her with this grave sentence, he lost that inspiration, perhaps. The one thing I would also want to point out is when he mentions a great doctor. I believe that that is Doctor Carroll, who started Highland, mm. Highland Hospital. And, ladies and gentlemen, my grandparents were at Highland Hospital. Right. Oh, my- yeah? Yeah, my grandfather and my mom went to St. Genevieve of the Pines. She went to high school in Asheville and left from Asheville to go to Bryn Mawr, Mm. um, you know, to college. Mm. So they were residents of Asheville. But my grandfather was a voluntary, I mean, they used to talk about it in the family that he was an assistant, that he helped out Dr. Carroll. But I believe Mm. that It's maybe more likely that he was just a a voluntary patient. Uh, My Uh, grandfather was an alcoholic. He was hmm. a sort of binge-drinking alcoholic. And, and, you know, within the family, it's speculated that he may have been homosexual. Or bisexual, Hmm. I should say. So, yeah, and my grandmother used to play tennis with Zelda. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who died tragically... You know who died tragically? I think it was in '48 when the hospital burned down. She was up on the top floor, heavily sedated, wow. and I believe that you know different doors and windows, etc., were locked. They were up on the top floor. Oh. It burned down, and I think eight people plus Zelda died in that fire. So this would have been eight oh. years after Fitzgerald died. You know, oh. you
3: know she was institutionalized for a period of time in Fishkill. I'm um, sorry, in Beacon, Right on the, oh, yeah? for two years or two months sorry you mean in an institution, institution there that i believe is still extant but long abandoned oh wow yeah fell into disrepair just like the um hudson valley psychiatric hospital in poughkeepsie as mm. a result of um, policies during ronald reagan's administration when yeah. the um mental were let out a lot of these hospitals were shut down well, um, i remember
0: when that happened it really changed new york yeah right
3: you know what paragraph i like when when he's Writing about the period immediately after, you know, this gradual breakdown, when he's becoming aware of what happened, he writes, trying to cling to something. I like doctors and girl children up to the age of about 13 and well brought up boy children from about eight years old on. I could have Mm -hmm. peace and happiness with these few categories of people. I forgot to add that I liked old men. (laughs) <laughs> Men over seventy, sometimes over sixty, if their faces looked seasoned. I liked Katharine Hepburn's face on the screen, no matter what was said about her pretentiousness, and Miriam Hopkins's face, and old friends. If I only saw them once a year and <laughs> and could remember their ghosts, yeah, that's a, yeah, a, a, a wonderful. wonderful her- Who is Miriam specific? Hopkins? Ends on a haunting note, and it is full a- of who, who is Miriam Hopkins? I am assuming some um, screen actress. I think. Yeah, that's sense. that sounds
0: um, like. At some point, he is reduced to making lists. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. reduced to you know writing down, I guess, from memory, etc. You know, different battles that he knows of, and etc Just making lists on lists. And I suspect he, that uh, what you read, Andrew, has the feeling of somebody writing down the kinds of people that they like. It's a you little know? kind of listy. listy.
3: Yeah, you know, what, you know what strikes me right now, um, interestingly, is I read somewhere, I think it was um, in the day books, in the diaries of James Schuyler, part of his, uh, um, what's referred to as what, his list poem his style of writing these list poems um, was a way to moor himself during periods of mental instability that he sat down and just listed everything he saw from his window. Or if he listed Hmm. um, things that he saw on TV over the course of a long day of TV watching, that that was, that was therapeutically useful. And I, I don't know if it solved the problem, but it gave him some activity, something to focus on. It didn't require an excessive degree of thought. Fitzgerald writes about wanting to empty his mind a little bit, wanting to cease from thinking too much, overthinking. It also kind of makes you think
1: that that for writers, uh, writing is a therapy. You know, just the physical act of writing, you know, uh, whether it's lists or anything, kind of is the way that they, you know, return to themselves
0: somehow. It's kind of like um, the medieval trope, the hand moves and the whole body labors, Um, that kind (laughs) of total engagement with just handwriting. Yeah, it's interesting. The paragraph is, and this is regarding, you know, his time there at the Park Grove Inn um, where he's gone into isolation and he writes, it was not an unhappy time. I went away and there were fewer people. I found I was good and tired. I could lie around and was glad to, sleeping or dozing, sometimes 20 hours a day, Ah. and in the intervals, trying resolutely not to think. Instead, I made (laughs) lists, made Ah, lists and tore them up, hundreds of lists of cavalry leaders and football players and cities and popular tunes and pictures and happy times and hobbies and houses lived in, etc. And of the times, I had let myself be snubbed by people who had not been (laughs) my betters in character or ability.
2: This
1: does fit my thesis that that something about masculinity is, uh, you know, maybe at the center of all this, because what are they, lists of battles? Lists of women I like. But like he's trying to convince himself that he's uh, heterosexual, you know, and and uh, that he's a real man who knows lots of cavalry
2: battles, you know.
0: That's interesting. interesting. And football players and pitchers. Yeah, yeah.
2: And there you go. Pitchers. Oh, paging Dr. Freud.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I wanted that that quote that you uh, recently uh, quoted. Uh, uh, Andrew, about uh, that great line about trying to cling to something, I like doctors and girl children. Yes. Uh, that comes right after one of these lines, because I have this whole theory about that all of this is about African Americans, like, you know, that as well as masculinity, like the under, there's a kind of, what's the word, light motif of African Americans, so I, I wrote all the, I, I underlined all the examples where he talks about black people. He says, he, he talks about, right before he, he talks about the people that he likes, that you just quoted, uh, he talks about everyone he didn't like. He said, um, I couldn't stand the sight of Celts, English, politicians, strangers, Virginians, Negroes, light or dark, hunting people or retail clerks, and middlemen in general, all writers, I avoided writers carefully because they can perpetuate trouble as no one else can. And all the classes and cl- as classes, and most of them as members of their class. So that's the first time he mentions black people. Negroes light or dark, which is a pretty strange, you know, specification. Uh, and then the next case, where you know, I know you can't really talk about this now, but I just feel I have to. He says, and, and he talks about smiling and, the, and, and how he needed to find the right smile for himself and a smile. Ah, I would get me a smile. I'm still working on that smile. It is to combine the best qualities of a hotel manager, an experienced old social weasel, a headmaster on visitors' day, a colored elevator man, a pansy pulling a profile, a producer getting stuff at half its market value. A trained nurse coming on a new job. A body vendor in her first rotogravure. Oh. One of these people, colored elevator man. This is this is one of the people he's kind of emulating. And then the next example is here. He says the man I had persistently tried to be became such a burden that I had cut him loose with as little compunction as a Negro lady cuts loose a rival on Saturday night. And then the last uh, case, where he's like, on the last paragraph. So, you know, you can read this as a kind of progression of how he's thinking about African Americans. And he says, so this is his final, what's the word, uh, summation. He says, I shall manage to live with the new dispensation, though it has taken some months to be certain of the fact. And just as the laughing stoicism which has enabled the American Negro to endure the intolerable conditions of his existence has cost him his sense of the truth, so in my case, there is a price to pay. Amazing, right? So he's, you know, it's, it's, of course, you know, very racist by today's standards, but he's in a way talking, you know, he's thinking about black people because he's thinking about, his own crack up and he's thinking about the USA and you can't think about the USA without thinking about black people. And I think one thing that he's thinking about is subjugation and you can't think about subjugation and and suffering in the USA without thinking about African-Americans. You know, there's something very prophetic about Fitzgerald and you know, and his final solution is he's going to be like the American Negro, the laughing stoicism that That's his ultimate role model, is is uh, African Americans whose laughing stoicism has made them endure the intolerable conditions of their existence. But it has caused them his sense of the truth, which I don't know what that means. Maybe yeah. that in order to be an African American, you have to have some kind of immense faith in God or in some other truth that that's beyond this world. And therefore, you lose your sense of the real truth.
2: That's how I took it.
0: No, it's super interesting. And I love that that line, and there is a price to pay. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of ringing. And then I was also struck, following on from that, by the reference to cave canem. Oh, yes. Cave canem is Latin for beware of dog.
1: Yes. Yeah, Yeah, we should read that that line, because it's such a great line.
0: Oh, okay. So, there's a price to pay. I did not any longer like the postman, nor the grocer, nor the editor, nor the cousin's husband, and he, in turn, will come to dislike me, so that life will never be very pleasant again, and the sign, Cave Canem, is hung permanently just above my door. I will try (laughs) to be a correct animal, though. And if you throw me a bone with enough meat on it, I may even lick your hand. Wow, what is... <laughs> I mean, the depth of the, the cynicism. But the Cave Canem, you know, is also a collective of African-American writers. Is it? Yes. Oh. And I wonder whether this is the source. You know, what
1: I love about it is how his first mentions of African-Americans sound very dismissive. The first thing he says, is he, he, he couldn't stand on the side of them. <laughs> and then he's sort of ridiculing these, like, uh, smiling elevator men. And, you know, it sounds like he's just a kind of racist who hates black people. And then it turns out, and then he uses that crazy comparison. He says, you know, I'm going to cut loose everybody I don't like the same way a Negro lady cuts loose a rival on mm-hmm. Saturday night, you know, just, like, ruthlessly. Thoughtlessly, it really, he has immense compassion for the for the, for the African American. I mean, in the well, last, I
0: mean Fitzgerald. I believe he did coin the phrase "the Jazz Age," mm-hmm. and you know, jazz is African American. And
1: also in uh, the Last Tycoon, there's a very weird scene where the uh, the Last Tycoon and his girlfriend are walking along the beach, and out of nowhere comes this African American guy, and the the tycoon says so him, so uh, You like movies? And the African-American guy says, no, I never go to the movies. Uh, the movies are, are are nonsense. And this really shakes up The Last Tycoon. Like, he really thinks about this. And he goes back to his job, and he scraps three of the movies that were in the middle of production, based on this kind of prophetic words of this African-American kind of uh, autodidact guy that he meets on the I, I
3: have two things to say. One is that there is um, a school of um, interpretation when it comes to the great Gatsby that believes that Jay Gatsby is black. Really? I and never the, heard that. Yeah. Gatsby is part black, that he's of a mixed um, racial identity and mm. that passes in the white right world. But that there, there are clues strewn through the, um, the novel that add credibility to this interpretation. And the other thing I was so busy assuming he was Jewish well, that it didn't occur to me. Jay Gatsby. The other thing that I was going to mention, Sparrow and Sam, to add some, um, add a new layer to what you were saying regarding the um, presence of um, African American identity identification in the crack up, is the fact that on a structural level, uh, I, I'm going to throw caution to the wind here and just to speculate. I read this as a blues. Ah, I see it ah. as a blues because it starts not with wholeness, but it starts on with dissonance. It starts with mm. fragmentation. It starts with brokenness, which is a characteristic of the blues. And I know Cornell West, when he came to Trinity School um, a few years back, I introduced him. It was a, it was a, a, a lovely experience. Uh, he defined the blues as um, struggle lyrically expressed. Mm. Struggle lyrically expressed. And um, I, I think that the, the struggle in this essay um, does express itself in the the, the beautiful language as you put it sparrow b- beautiful lyrical expression of the pain which has parallels to the blues tradition uh, i don't mm-hmm. know if um, fitzgerald was aware of this after this but it just occurred to me i think it's a uh, it's worth mentioning
1: and also the blues doesn't have a happy ending you know i like, like what I like about this essay so much is it made me realize reading this, like how the world has been like poisoned by the new age and everything has to be inspirational and happy and have a, you know, if not a happy ending, at least kind of point towards some kind of, you know, resolution or, you know, with some gesture of uh, hopefulness at the end. And uh, in fact, uh, I, I love this uh, conversation he has with this friend of his where she's some kind of uh, you know proto new age person and he's he's having this little dialogue with her and uh she's he, he says about her she was cast in the unusually unappealing role of job's comforter job in the bible who every tragedy happens to him
2: yeah
1: uh, And then he says, in spite of the fact that this story is over, let me append our conversation as a sort of postscript. Um, and she says, instead of being so sorry for yourself, listen, she said. She always says listen because she thinks while she talks, really thinks. So she said, listen, suppose this wasn't a crack in you. Suppose it was a crack in the Grand Canyon. The cracks in me, I said heroically. And then he later accuses her of being Spinoza, who I guess is his kind of, uh, you know, what's the word, symbol of this kind of positivist, you know, pantheist, uh, spiritual viewpoint. And he wants to hold on to his pain. He wants to hold on to his unhappy ending, which is like the blues. You know, at the end of the blues, it's not like, well, you know, I thought it all over. And, you know, uh, when you really look at the big picture, it's not so bad. It's like, no, it's the blues. You can't shake it. Wherever you go, it follows you. You know, that's, that's how it is. You know? right. <laughs> it's a tragic sense, except that by singing about it, you a little bit encapsulated or overcome it in the sense that you've turned it into a story, which is kind of what he does here.
0: Interesting.
1: Even yeah. that last line, if you throw me a bone with enough meat on it, I may even lick your hand. You can yeah, hear that as a blues a blue line, reel, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm really um, digging your thesis, Andrew. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.